Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Those sounded like owls. They did. Owls are amazing creatures. But spooky. Why would I put owls in front of the show? I don't know. Maybe because it's almost Halloween? Welcome to the Dark Poutine First Anniversary Halloween Special. <laughs> I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. What's going on, everybody? What is crackalackin', Scott? Yes, well, you know. Halloween's crackalackin'. Exactly. Yeah. You getting ready? You got your costume? I uh, We just got one for the dog. Well, there you go. He did not seem impressed. What does he, what's he gonna dress like? A little ladybug. Nice. Yeah. No, he, he's not, he did not look comfortable. No. Yeah, screw him. He's wearing it. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised, especially this episode. Especially. We're not experts on any of the topics we present. Nor are we professional paranormalists. <laughs> Is that a real word? I don't know. I think it should be. We're just two regular Canadians interested in crime and the darker side of history. Woo-hoo. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a pumpkin spice latte, and a pillowcase full of candy. It's time to choke down some dark poutine. <laughs> <laughs> So you might have noticed that uh, our intro is just a little different. Well, we've got to make it seasonal. That's right, because yeah. it's A, it's Halloween. Correct. And the anniversary of our show is Halloween. What What are couples supposed to get each other on the one-year anniversary? Paper. Oh, okay, well, I'll get here. I'll, here I'll, here's, I'll, a, here's a used <laughs> Kleenex. I'll bring you some paper. You'd find paper outside your door randomly. It was me. So this week, being our first anniversary and our Halloween episode, to celebrate... We've asked some podcast friends from all over the world to share with us some spooky campfire stories from their neck of the woods. Oh, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. Well, speaking of the woods, that's where we are tonight. So we want you to sit down here on one of these comfy logs and or pull up a stump. Right next to me, preferably. Yep. Hold my hand because I'm Hold Scott's hand. Yeah, I get scared to it. Hear the wind in the trees and the leaves rustle. Yeah. We've made a campfire to keep us warm. It's lovely. 
I'll take the talking stick and get this very special first anniversary Halloween episode of Dark Poutine started. Let's do that. Well, I was going to Vancouver Film School and then auditioning for various parts I didn't get. Ooh. I needed a job to keep a roof over my head. It had to be one that afforded me room in my schedule to be a full-time student and keep me free for daytime call-outs or parts. Mm -hmm. I began to work for a large security company as a guard. After a month of nights staring at cars in a North Vancouver car sales lot, I was sent to another posting. I was presentable, dealt with the public well. So, management sent me to one of the more high-profile sites, Vancouver General Hospital, or VGH, where I could be one of the six guards on all night, including a supervisor. Mm. VGH today is a large property with many buildings spanning its campus. It was then. As a security guard, you had access to everything, including the tunnels spanning out from the building to building like the roots of a tree. Mm. These tunnels were built not only for maintenance and transport, but to keep the public from having to see the uglier sides of medicine. Interesting. The hospital's morgue is in the tunnel, under what is now called the Jim Pattison Pavilion North. The morgue's three full-time pathology assistants and three forensic pathologists toil away, determining cause of death for the recently deceased, doing more than 400 autopsies a year. Oh, wow. That's more than I would think. Especially here in yeah. Vancouver, yeah. The morgue is a fascinating place. I saw it more than once. The first time was on my very first shift, the very first night. Mm. Near the door is an elevator that leads from the emergency parking area directly. It's here that the coroner or some other body recovery professional drops off the recently deceased for autopsy and other post-mortem investigation. This is also used for discreet retrieval of the body by funeral homes after the autopsy is done. As you enter, you're immediately stricken by the smell, not only of death, as described in many true crime shows and books, but also cleaning and preservation chemicals. Makes sense. It's true that once you smell a human body decomposing, you can never forget it. And yes, it does stick in your nostrils for some days later. Yeah. A large, heavy refrigerator door, like you would see in a large hotel or restaurant, sits off to one side. Trying to scare me on the tour, the site supervisor and another senior guard opened the door and beckoned me over for a look. This is called the crypt. <laughs> they were surprised when I walked right past them and inside. I was very familiar with the sights and smells. I'd worked in a cemetery as a gravedigger and seen much that way. I've even participated in, in an exhumation or two. Oh, wow. I'll tell that story another day. Inside the crypt are bodies on bunk bed kind of racks or tables, and these are in blankets or body bags, depending on how they arrive there. Mm -hmm. I recall the darkened skin and bloated size of one individual recently brought in. He'd drowned and been floating in the water for some time that summer. Not a pleasant image at all. Oh my god, I can imagine. There are stainless steel drawers, typical of any morgue you'd see in a movie. In fact, this morgue has been in many TV shows and films. Some of the drawers are locked for forensic investigative reasons with a case file tag attached. There are steel autopsy tables and various instruments organized carefully for the next day's work. 
I recall shelves with organs, like lungs and livers, in large plastic ice cream containers filled with preservation solution. I guess still part of an active investigation. Yeah. There's a doctor's-only pathology museum in a secure wing of the hospital. I explored that one night, learning about a variety of cancers and diseases. Specimens are carefully labeled and presented in custom glass and plastic wall-mounted displays. I presume for medical professionals to better understand what they might be looking for or at. Mm -hmm. Among other interesting places there in the hospital are the BC Cancer Agency building with lots of high-tech cancer-fighting machinery, the hyperbaric chamber, a huge laundry area with laundry machines that are about two stories tall, yep. mechanical floors, the hospital's roof, the psychiatric wing, and a TB clinic. Contrary to what some believe, tuberculosis is still a large problem worldwide, even with vaccination being prevalent. Emergency and the psychiatric quiet rooms were also a busy place for security. More than once, we'd been called to help restrain an unmanageable patient, many of whom were out of their minds on some sus substance or another. Hospitals can be scary places, as people die there. This is true. With a large volume of death concentrated in one area, typically come ghost stories. VGH is no exception. Here's mine. There are some more well-known ghost stories around VGH, a number centered around the old nurse's residence, also now gone. Cindy James, whose mysterious story we told in episode 43, was trained at the hospital and would have lived in that residence. When I worked there, the 11-story nurse's res still stood, but was abandoned, and there were spooky stories to be told about that place. I have one or two, but that's not what this story is about. I'll save those for the after show. There is another, more well-known case of ghost sighting and haunting at Vancouver General. This is the one that I want to talk about tonight. Obscured by the massive new structures added over the years is the beautiful stone building now called Heather Pavilion, as it is situated near Heather Street off Broadway. Originally called Fairview Building, it was opened in 1906 as Vancouver Hospital's first construction on the new hospital site. By the 1950s, VGH was now a teaching hospital. Many more buildings had been added to Heather and Heather Pavilion has been surrounded, dwarfed, and all but nearly forgotten. From the, from the Vancouver Voyager blog, Heather Pavilion features four granite towers topped with a cupola and a, is a Romanesque-style structure. An interesting note concerns one of the architects. The architect, George William Grant, also designed the Carnegie Library at the cor corner of Maine and Hastings in 1903, as well as many of the buildings in New West. It's a beautiful building, but it feels older than it is just by its design. I explored that building thoroughly, finding interesting areas locked off to the public. In darkness, my, f my flashlight found huge in darkness, my flashlight found a huge dusty room filled with various styles of wheelchairs and prosthetic limbs stacked willy-nilly. As this was part of the route through every night, I tended to hurry up a bit as I went. 
There were too many places for someone or something to hide in there. Nearby was a disused operating theater with seating above so medical students of yore could watch and learn the latest complex medical procedure. Another building was connected to the Heather Pavilion, but demolished sometime in the late 70s or 80s. It was, at the time, the burn unit. On October 3rd, in 1975, there was a large fire at Burrard Terminal Grain Elevator on North Vancouver's waterfront. The blaze had been caused by a simple spark in the dusty structure filled with extremely dry and flammable grain. Several explosions during the intense fire led to the evacuation of homes between 3rd Street and the area of Low Level Road. It took fire crews some time to contain it. During the fire, 16 workers were injured and another four died. One, bo one man's body was never found. One of the fatalities, who we'll call Arthur, was taken to the burn unit attached to the Heather Pavilion and placed in room 415. 28-year-old Arthur's body was covered head to toe in third-degree burns. Although the doctors felt that Arthur's outlook was grave, he did remain conscious and fought, albeit in tremendous pain. Finally, Arthur told one of the nurses he was tired and the pain had become too much. Soon after, thankfully, he passed away. According to staff at the time, strange things began to happen around room 415. The first things were that a nurse noticed the bed sheets appeared to move on their own as though someone was in them. She also claimed that she could hear the sounds of a man breathing in the unoccupied room. Cold spots began appearing near room 415. Toilets would flush on their own, and patients' transistor radios in the burn unit would turn on full blast without being touched. From Mark Leslie and Rhonda Parrish's book, Haunted Hospitals, quote, on one occasion, a male nurse preoccupied with getting room 415 ready for the next patient walked in and noticed a colleague's white form out of the corner of his eye. When he turned to ask what he thought was his colleague for assistance, the white form fell to the floor, nothing more than a pile of dressings. There was nobody there at all. The nurse suspected he had seen Arthur. Arthur also visited patients, comforting them as they lay suffering and healing from horrific burns. After the burn unit was demolished in the decades later, Arthur was not spotted quite as frequently. He began to make appearances in the tunnels under the hospital. Specifically, he was glimpsed going around the corner from the main tunnel into the long doorless corridor toward Heather Pavilion. When the person who had seen the apparition go around the corner only moments earlier would turn that way themselves, this thing would be gone. Impossible. Vanished into thin air. He was sometimes described as wearing work clothes from the era or dressings from head to foot, like those described in the previous accounts. While I was working one night, a fellow guard at the hospital had an unusual and disturbing encounter. This young man, I'll call Kevin, was new to the job, only a few weeks. His route for the night was to be Heather Pavilion, which took him through the tunnels from our office. When we all returned for lunch in the guardroom that night, Kevin had been there ahead of us all. He was wide-eyed and shaky, but just sat there quietly, 
I went out for a smoke before heading back to the guardroom for lunch. When I got there, the others had already been talking to Kevin. One of the guys asked Kevin to tell me what he'd seen. Kevin haltingly told me that he'd been walking in the tunnel, having just exited Heather Pavilion, and noticed a disheveled man in dirty, perhaps burned, work clothes coming toward him. We hadn't told Kevin about Arthur yet. Kevin tried to engage the man in conversation, but the figure ignored him and continued to approach, getting too close for comfort. Kevin said he put up his hands to stop the man, and the figure simply walked right through him as though he weren't even there. Kevin said he felt very cold inside as the thing went through him. Oddly, even close up, he could not describe the face. It was like a blur, Kevin said. No one really said much. We all went back to eating our lunch. Kevin just sat there staring at his shoes. Many of us had talked about the Phantom of the Burn Unit before, but no one seemed to want to say what it was. After a few minutes, Kevin got up, abruptly took off his utility belt, and laid his radio on the table. He walked over to the coat rack, grabbed his jacket, and told us he was leaving for the night. Kevin never came back. I'd known him only briefly, but he didn't seem the type to just make something up. A weird way to quit your job if it was bullshit. I wonder if he really did see an echo of Arthur wandering in the tunnel. After that, I was a little more tentative as I walked those tunnels at night. I didn't see Arthur, but I often felt something or someone else was there as I trudged along. Uh, that yeah, I've got chills. Right? Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's a true story. Yeah, yeah. Because if you want to quit, there's many legitimate other yeah, I'm just uh, reasons. Or you just say, I don't like doing this job. And it wasn't even like he said... I'm out of here. I quit. He said, I'm leaving for the night. So it would make you think you went home and, and pondered what happened. No, or the next day he was just like, no, I can't go back there. Or Arthur followed him home and he's never been seen from since. Well, I hope that's not what happened because, well, I'm pretty sure he must have quit because nobody said the guy just disappeared. No, I know. It, it, it's Halloween though. That's, uh, that's very creepy. So, Scott. Yeah. Do you have a scary story that I should shut up for? Um, yes, I do. Well, I will pass you the talking stick, sir. <clears throat> okay, well, let me get talking. Uh, so it's not a very long story, uh, but I will, as I'm able to do, lengthen it. I should probably preface uh, this story by giving some um, backstory to my life at that time. So uh, I was young. I was probably around four. I was born, as we've talked about before, in Clearwater, B.C., so very, very small town in the interior of uh, of BC. We ended up living, my father, myself, and my brother, we ended up moving in with my dad's girlfriend, who I always thought of as my stepmom, in uh, Penintan Lake, BC, which is pretty much nothing. Like, there's nothing there. Like, our nearest neighbor was probably a, a block or two away. Like, there, it's not like it was a, a residential uh, suburb or something. No, it's, it's just like, yeah, we live next to a lake. I was young. I quite enjoyed living there. Uh, we had, it was a nice home. We had a, a dock out to the lake that would freeze over in winter and you could go run around on it and everything. Yeah, lots of wilderness. We'd see deer walk up to the house, um, but very, very rural. In this house, 
that stepmother I mentioned, my dad's girlfriend, Gail, she, she ended up hanging herself in our home. And it was quite a traumatic event for all of us involved. It still haunts me to this day. Right there is some very scary linkage for me to that home. So one night, I can vividly remember this. I'm, it was after her passing. Um, I can remember, so the layout of this house was you walk into the door and there was like a little bar area there to the left was like our living room. And there was a spiral staircase there. It's not as grand or large as it sounds. There was a spiral staircase there that led up to a hallway. And up there, if you were to be walking down the hallway to the immediate right would be my dad and Gail's room. I think a bathroom to the left. Uh, and then when you would walk to the end of the hall on the left was my brother and mine. And it was our bedroom. And I remember I was going to bed and uh, I remember you know, just a regular night falling asleep. And then out of the blue, almost like it was a dream, out of the blue, I'm awake at the end of the hall, right at the top of the stairs. So I'm at, I'm at the opposite end of the hall where my bedroom is. And I just remember being awake and standing there and going like, oh, what am I doing out of bed? Like what? Uh, what why am I here I should be in bed and uh started to walk towards the room I looked into the bedroom I remember seeing my dad and I also remember seeing Gail lying in bed remember she she had passed but they were just lying in, in bed uh sleeping like n nothing happening there and I continue to walk to you know again I'm, I'm like forced I'm like you know I don't want to get in trouble I better get to bed I better get to bed and, and I walk to the end of the hall uh, I turn to my left to go into the room and I'm seeing myself lying on the bed. Me and my brother are lying there. I'm lying on the bed and I just remember like just being in absolute like confused state of shock. Just like what's going on? I remember vividly how I looked. Uh, I was asleep. I had one arm hanging off the side of the bed. One knee, my, I think my right knee was up. I remember the blankets kind of only being half on me diagonally. And I just remember sitting there staring at myself, completely confused. And then boom, I wake up in the bed exactly like how I saw me with the blankets as exactly how I saw them. It's something that I've never... Um, yeah, I, I, I can't explain. I'm not, I'm a very skeptical person. Uh, I don't believe in ghosts, but I love ghost stories. I love creepy stuff. Uh, I don't believe in the paranormal, but man, do I love that stuff. I would love for there to be scientific proof and for them to be real. So I try to be a very skeptical person, but that experience has allowed me to um, put faith in other individuals who have stories to tell because i'm a skeptic like i said i'm skeptical mm -hmm. but i can't explain what happened to me that night so let me get the timeline straight yeah this is post gail's passing her post suicide yes so you're having an out-of-body experience it, clearly and typically people uh what i have read and like I say, I am skeptical as well, mm -hmm. but what I have read are people, people will say they will see things when out of body that you would not see normally. Yep. So 
she was there with your father, perhaps yeah. comforting him. Well, in yeah, they some were just, way. they were just, it was just like they would normally be lying yeah. in bed sleeping at night. Very, very and awesome. So, but that's not the only somewhat out of body experience I've had. Oh, really? I was probably about 11 or so. And my mom, myself, my brother, and my Aunt Joanne, who relatively recently passed away from breast cancer about 10 years or so ago. But uh, nonetheless, it was the the three or the four of us. We were taking a trip to Calgary to visit family. And we stopped outside of Kamloops, I believe, just so we could camp overnight and then continue the drive the next day. Uh, I was not jazzed about uh being outdoors we camped it was like a regular campsite like there was tents everywhere rvs everywhere it was packed um my mom gave the option to my brother and i we can either sleep in the tent or uh sleep in the car Mm -hmm. which was a hyundai pony by the way oh god that's tiny too it really was uh and i uh I was suffering from tremendous night terrors at the time, so I decided I'm going to sleep in, in the car with my brother. Uh, but I only made it about half an hour before my my absolute terror and fear kicked in, and I'm like, no, i got to go sleep in the tent with my mom. My mom will keep me safe. So I remember uh, I went and sl- I went in there. I didn't have my sleeping bag. I didn't have any. I didn't bring it with me. It's into the tent, so I'm lying there. I wake up my mom. I'm telling her I'm terrified. She's like, well, you can sleep in here, but... You got to go get your sleeping bag. And I'm like, I'm too scared to go get it. And she's like, well, sleep in here without a sleeping bag. As a parent now, I can think, yeah, God, I'd be, yeah. if I was my kid, I'd be like, well. Yeah, just shut up and go to sleep. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I lied down. And um, it, it was so bizarre. I, I remember lying there. I remember thinking in my head, this is going to be a terrible night. Because it's cold, I don't have a sleeping blanket, I'm too scared to go back and get it, I'm just going to be lying here awake all night. And then, like nothing, right after that thought, I blinked, and it was morning. Oh, weird. It was, it was so, because it was so, such a weird, because you're like, yeah, I'm terrified, like, this is going to be an awful night, this is going to suck, oh, it's morning, like, literally, it was just like that, and then the very next night, so I, at that time, I'm like, cool, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, and uh, the very next night, and for decades after, I keep having the same dream that um, there was a big open field next to the campsite, and I kept having the same dream where I get up out of the tent, I go walk, I climb. Uh, uh, it, it was a fence, but it was kind of like big, thick uh, wood. And I climbed over that. And then I just, I, I would be walking through that field. Walking in, in the dream, I'm walking somewhere. Like there's a reason why I'm walking interesting but yeah uh, but i have no idea and, and i know it like in, it was because i can remember getting out of the out of the camp, camp do you uh, still have camp. this dream uh not as frequent but it does happen yeah oh, and so like i can't it's kind of an out-of-body thing inside like yeah those those are my two the two scary moments in my life where i go yeah i can't explain those things it could just be uh when i was a child when i was 10 or sorry when i was four i remember seeing my like i 
I, I knew the position I was in when I woke up because that's how I was lying. You, you, I was aware. It could just be a dream walking through there. But And those are things that always give me chills in my life when I think about them. That's a cool story. Yeah. 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 Let's pass the talking stick to some of our friends here. First up will be our friends. Will be First up will be Shay and Aaron from the All Crime No Cattle podcast. And they came through with a scary story of their own all the way from Texas. Ooh, I can't wait. So let's go. Let's listen to this one. Let's get into it. Hey guys, I'm Shay, one half of All Crime No Cattle. You'll hear my better half, my co-host Aaron, here just in a second. So I heard Mike and Scott were doing a Halloween special, and I couldn't let the chance slip by to tell a spooky tale from the Lone Star State. So let me tell you a little bit about one of the local specters that we have down here, the Lady of White Rock Lake. Sources for my story are the scenicwhiterocklake.com, as well as an article by WFAA Channel 8 News by Ryan Osborne last May of 2018. This story dates back to at least as early as the 1930s. One of the more famous renditions of this tale was documented by the Texas Folklore Society, which published a story about the Lady of White Rock Lake in 1943. And that's the version I will share with you now. One hot July night, a young couple, having driven out and parked on the shore of White Rock Lake near East Dallas, switched on the headlights of their car and saw a white figure approaching. As the figure came straight to the driver's window, they saw it was a young girl dressed in a sheer white dress that was dripping wet. She spoke in a somewhat faltering voice. The driver rolled down the window, and she spoke. I'm sorry to intrude, and I would not do so under any other circumstances, but I must find a way home immediately. I was in a boat that overturned. The others are safe, but I must get home. After the driver agreed, she climbed into the rumble seat and gave them an address in Oak Cliff on the opposite side of Dallas. The young couple felt an uneasiness concerning their strange passenger. And as they neared the destination, the female passenger turned back to the rumble seat to ask the strange woman in need for more detailed directions. However, the seat was empty and still dripping wet. After a brief, futile search for the girl in white, the couple went to the address she had given originally, and they were met at the door by a man whose face showed lines of worry. When he had heard the couple's story, the man replied in a troubled voice, Quote, this is a very strange thing. You are the third couple who has come to me with this story. Three weeks ago, while sailing on White Rock Lake, my daughter drowned. I think she's still trying to make it home. Of course, this is one of the more popular versions of this tale, an urban legend of actual events that some have cited as being a possible basis for this seemingly far-fetched story. An eerily similar story to the one I just told you was published by none other than the famous Neiman Marcus of Texas in their book, The Story of the Proud Dallas Store. Guy H. Malloy, who worked as a window dresser for Neiman Marcus, and his wife, Josephine, 
had an almost identical run-in with the Lady of White Rock Lake some 10 years before the Texas Folklore Society published their popular version. In fact, not only were the Malloy's story noted in a police report and by Neiman Marcus staff, but something else was particularly strange. On Friday, July 5th, 1935, about the time of year and the right date, a woman found a suicide note left by her sister, Louise Ford Davis. The woman immediately alerted the police that her sister was attempting to kill herself at White Rock Lake. Authorities were dispatched to save the woman, but they were too late. Detective Bryan told the Daily Dallas Times-Herald, quote, I was driving along Garland Road, turned off on White Rock Lake Road, and shortly afterwards I saw Mrs. Davis. Her head was bobbing in the water, end quote. It was estimated that she had been in the lake for five minutes by the time Detective Bryan was able to get the woman's body ashore, and he failed to resuscitate her. And so I leave you with this, Dark Poutine and the Yumber Yarders who are listening. Could Guy and Josephine be telling the truth that a woman in need of help really mysteriously vanished from their car, only leaving a pool of water? Is it possible that Louise Ford Davis was the real Lady of White Rock Lake? And more importantly, could she still be walking the lake shores at night, still trying to find someone to help her back home? You tell me. Enjoy your Halloween and this wonderful Dark Poutine Halloween special. Sincerely, your friends, all crime, no cattle. Happy holidays. love it yeah right i love it i love those kind of stories so i'll be in in texas in december for a meetup at a dallas stars and edmonton oilers game yes you will uh and i can't wait to meet shay and aaron and uh all the listeners uh who are going to come out from all crime no cattle they've been very supportive of us and apparently there's quite a few dark poutine fans in texas as well sweet Maybe you guys can give a Lady in White uh, a ride. Nope. Next up, we have Heather, who's the host of the Left Behind podcast out of Nova Scotia. I met her at our meetup this, this summer. She's sharing a particularly haunting ghost story from her family's lore. Oh. Here it is. Good day, everyone. I'm Heather from the Left Behind podcast. My podcast is a true crime podcast that discusses the missing and murdered in Canada with a focus on the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. My podcast is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. I've never encountered any ghosts, but some of my family members have. My grandfather died when I was two and a half years old. I don't really remember much about him, but one of my first memories is the day that he died. I remember how everyone was sad, and it was two weeks before Christmas. My mom had bought me a fancy new dress. I was going to wear it to my brother's first Christmas concert. My mom had these earrings I was only allowed to wear in the house. She said I could wear them to Scott's concert. I could not understand why everyone was not excited. I was getting to wear my dangly earrings outside and Santa was coming. My poppy had been sick for a while. His eighth heart attack had killed him 
He was in surgery when he had a massive heart attack. Prior to his death, he was in and out of the hospital for months. Since September of that year, he had only been out of the hospital for one week. The night my grandfather died, my mom had stayed the night with my nan. The next morning, my mom and my aunt were going to help my nan with the funeral arrangements. During the night, my mom woke up and she couldn't go back to sleep. She decided to get up to not to disturb my nan. My grandparents had a covered veranda and my mom went outside to get some air. She saw my grandfather walking up the hill. My poppy was an avid outdoorsman. He went hunting, fishing, hiking, and took us blueberry picking in the woods. He always wore a plaid hunting jacket, a hat, work pants, and rubber boots. When my mom had saw him walking up the hill, he was wearing his favorite clothes. He talked to her for a bit. He told her that he was okay now. He was no longer in pain, and she needed to be strong for my nan. He told her that he loved her and disappeared into the house. My mom went back into the house and said she felt peace. The next morning, she was telling my nan about her dream. My nan had a similar experience. She woke up and she was alone in her bed. Poppy was at the end of their bed. He was wearing his hunting jacket, pants, and boots. He told her that he loved her and that he was strong again. He was at peace and saw my great uncle who had died years earlier. He went to their closet and disappeared. It was Scott's first Christmas concert. His concert was scheduled at the same time as Poppy's visitation. My family went to Scott's concert, saw him perform, and then headed to the funeral home. When they got there, Scott said he wanted to tell Poppy about his concert. My dad took him up to the casket to talk to him. He was having a conversation with him. Scott told him about the concert. Scott told my dad that Poppy was there with him at the concert watching him. Scott was scolding him for wearing his rubber boots. He told him that you're not allowed to wear rubber boots to a Christmas concert. I imagine that my mom had told my brother earlier that day that he wasn't allowed to wear his rubber boots. They were having a back and forth conversation. They talked for about 10 minutes. To this day, Scott swears that Poppy was talking to him. My family went back and forth on if they were going to celebrate Christmas that year. Christmas was my grandfather's holiday. Poppy was the real-life Clark Griswold. A few days before Christmas, my grandmother decided to host Christmas. Everyone was frantically trying to decorate the house, get gifts, wrap gifts, and do the Christmas baking. A few days before Christmas, my aunt and nan went Christmas shopping. They came home and wrapped all of the gifts and put them in the bedroom closet. On Christmas Eve, my aunt had taken the gifts and put them under the Christmas tree. Christmas that year was a somber day. My uncle was passing out the gifts and found one for my mom. On the tag was my grandfather's handwriting. It said, To Cindy, Love Dad. My mom opened the gift and it was a necklace that had number one daughter. Everyone swears they did not know about this gift. My aunt swears she did not put it under the Christmas tree. There's no way that my poppy could have went out and bought it.
Wow, thanks, thanks, Heather, for sharing that very, very personal. Thank you very much. That was uh, while <sighs> I was listening to it for the first time. I thought, "Holy cow! Yeah, what a story!" Yeah, I, I'm feeling a little emotional hearing that because the per, that personal touch from from oh, Heather. Wow, that's uh, that's, that that was a beautiful story too. Agreed. Because yeah, of lot, there lots of love involved. We'll lighten it up here a little bit with a story from Adam a long-time Dark Poutine supporter, and now host of Point Blank, a true crime podcast. He's going to tell us a ghost story from Australia, mate. You'd better have a didgeridoo in it, or I'm going to I don't know lose if it, it. I don't think it does. Damn. Here's Adam. The Pilliga Scrub is a massive expanse of thick bushland in the central upper half of New South Wales. Much has been lost in there, never to be found again, from sheep and cattle to people and vehicles. Even today, it is dense and foreboding. Originally, a dirt track ran through the middle, and today is now a major road called the Newell Highway. There are a lot of stories that have emerged from the forest, and one in particular is that of a bag lady who lived in the Pilliga Scrub. She was often seen with her old battered shopping trolley, loaded with her belongings along the road, and truckers will see her at night, walking in complete darkness. She was a recluse, old, grey-haired and crazy, and they dubbed her the Pilliga Princess. For many years, she was a familiar sight to regular travellers and truck drivers along that stretch of road. Because the Pilliga Scrub had, and still has, unexplained stories of terror associated with it, the locals will tell you you'd have to be completely crazy to be in the scrub after dark. Anyone passing through for the first time saw the princess as an almost terrifying ghostly figure. One dark night in 1993, the Pilliga Princess was hit and killed by a truck. The truck driver who hit her said she had been wandering across the road and he hadn't seen her until it was too late. He told how as she was lit by the headlights, she turned to look directly at him and ran toward him, arms outstretched. The last thing he saw of her alive was the white hair flaring out around her wild-eyed face and the expression was one of manic glee. Since then, other truckers swear they have seen her walking a trolley at night, just as she had done for years before she was killed. One truck driver even claimed to have hit her trolley, but with no princess in sight. So, would you like to go on a road trip? So after I changed my underwear, <laughs> thanks, Adam. Yeah, that was a good one, Adam. That was pretty pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah, no didgeridoo, but the story makes up for it. 
Speaking of didgeridoos, Ooh, yes, yes. our friends from Nova Scotia, Lily and Krista of the 36 Times podcast, shared a bit of fun in the way of a campfire story. Ooh. Let's have a listen to these two wagadoos. Hi, I'm Lily. Hey, I'm Krista. And we're 36 Times, a Canadian true crime and comedy podcast. And for this very special episode of Dark Poutine, <laughs> submitted for your approval at the Yumberyard Society, we bring to you our favorite campfire stories <laughs> with noises. All right, are you going to tell me a story? I'm going to tell you my favorite sc- story, scary story, Ooh. when I was a kid mm-hmm. that scared the bejesus out of me ah. and also made me horribly sad because it involved a dog. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. There was a young girl. We'll name her Julie. Oh, no. Is that bad? I, I, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I'm afraid of Julie's. <laughs> we'll just say Julie. Ooh. And ever since she was very young, for comfort, she would put her hand down and her loyal, we'll say, Labrador retriever Uh would lick her hand, Uh you know, to comfort her, as they do. So now Julie is much older. She's in her early teens. Ancient. Yes, I suppose. (laughs) Ancient. And her parents are finally saying, hey, yeah, cool. You're old enough to stay home by yourself. Totes. So her parents leave one evening, about eight o'clock. She chills, watches some TV, you know, heads to bed, and uh, she was a little bit spooked by the whole being alone thing. Yeah. So she put her hand down, dog licks, and she thinks, perfect. Got this. I'm all good. Dog's with me. Time for nappy naps. (laughs) Nappy naps happen. Oh. In the middle of the night, she hears a drip, drip, drip. Oh, man. She kind of wakes, stirs up a little bit, thinks, what's that? She again puts her hand down and lick, 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 lick. Oh, good. It's fine. Yeah. Everything's fine. Yeah. Falls back asleep. Oh, good. A second time. Drip, drip, drip. Ah. Puts her hand down one more time. Mm-hmm. Lick, lick, lick. Ah. All good. Yes, I'm safe. I'm safe. Dog's here. Don't worry about your plumbing. It's fine. That's your parents' problem. Whatever. So, all good. Huh. She wakes in the morning to a horrible scene. In her bathroom is her dog hanging from the shower. Oh no! Having been stabbed. (gasps) And all night long she heard the dripping from its little body. Oh no! And in the mirror, written in the canine's blood, is humans can lick too. (laughs) Oh! Oh my gosh. Well listeners and Krista, I will give you a scary story that's more of an emotional roller coaster than anything, or a psychological thriller, if you will. It's the story of the girl with the green ribbon. So little Jenny. I know it's J names. J names. <laughs> little Jenny. Now she always wore a pretty green ribbon around her neck. It was very much the thing. She was growing up in the nineties. It was a choker time. <laughs> We Shut all up, I did that. Right? I know, me too. <laughs> I spent my allowance on one. It was ten bucks. Ten bucks back in those days. Anyway, uh, a choker that, that she wore that was very fashionable. It was this green ribbon. She always wore it around her neck. Now as she grew, she always had that ribbon on. Everybody's like, there goes Jenny with her green ribbon. Jeez. Get She's her weird. Thing. She's so weird with her green ribbon. Gross. 
So when she was a teen, she met a handsome young gentleman by the name of Alfred. And Alfred was like, mm, girl, I am digging your green ribbon game. I like it. She's like, don't talk about it. He's like, oh, that's a bit weird. She's like, yeah, no, just don't talk about it. I know I wear it all the time, but just don't talk about it. It's fine. You don't need to ask about it. She's like, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. Uh, you want to go on a date? She's like, yeah, 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 I do. So they started dating. And they fell in love. And they even got married. And all that time, <laughs> Jenny was wearing that green ribbon. She was rocking her green ribbon game. And, and bless him, Alfred never questioned it. Even on the wedding day, when she's wearing that green ribbon, he was all like, um... I mean, I mean so it's, you know, it's like something borrowed, something new, something, you know, you know that kind of thing. It's usually blue. Blue deer. Uh, it'll be green today. It's my green ribbon. I'm not taking it off. Don't ask about it, please. It'd be gross. So gross. So they, they 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 go on with life. Married life is fine. The honeymoon's fine. The ribbon stays on. Ribbon stays on for most of their lives. In fact, it stayed on till a very old age for Jenny. Old Jenny. In fact, she had that ribbon around her neck in her deathbed. And Alfred's all like, "Oh, Jenny, I'm gonna miss you." Um, because I assume that's what you say to someone in their deathbed. Uh, <laughs> have a good trip. And she's like, don't forget the secret words for when you come back and haunt me. Yeah. Just, uh, or like every ghost ever, just knock randomly and turn the lights on and off. I'll, that and I'll know it's you. Um, so she was all like, okay, okay, Alfred. Today's the day. Oh, Jenny's going to let her secret out. You can take the green ribbon off. He's like, oh my God, you have no idea. I've been fetishizing that strip of your neck for all of her lives. So I, gross. The moment I remove it, I'm pretty sure, sorry, just clear the room. Gonna empty. And so she is like, just do it. Just, just do it. Take it off. He takes it off. And then Jenny's head fell off. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is from the literary classic In a Dark, Dark Room which messed me up as a kid. I think it messed up a lot of us. I'm glad that I got to share that with you. <laughs> All right. So I've got a few questions. Uh, yeah, Lily and Krista, Scott's got questions. He'll probably contact you on Facebook, and uh, we'll just go over it. Did the dog kill itself? or No, the the thing that was licking her hand. Well, then why, like, why kill the dog? I yeah. I'll, it's a we'll campfire it, story, Scott. We'll take it offline, ladies. Yeah, we'll take a break right now. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Uh, let's continue with the creepiness. Next up, we have Bonnie from Writing About Crime, another Canadian podcast. This one's based in Winnipeg. Mm. She has a quick UFO story for us from Manitoba. Oh, they're my favorite UFO stories. Yeah, here's Bonnie. I'm Bonnie Lee of Writing About Crime, and I'd like to tell you fans of Dark Poutine a story from the center of the wilderness of Canada called Close Encounters at Vulcan Lake. The White Shell is located in central Canada, here in the province of Manitoba. Originally populated by the Ojibwe and Anishinaabe people, 
the area is no stranger to bizarre and unusual happenings. The parks are now a popular destination for hikers, campers, golfers, fishers, and many other outdoorsmen. However, it's also known as the place where one of the most credible and well-documented cases of a UFO story has been reported. The story of Stephen Michalak is one that will certainly make you a little wary when gazing up at the night sky in this region of Manitoba. The tale begins on May 19, 1967. Amateur geologist Stephen Michalak headed to the bush in search of precious minerals. He was deep in the brush when he saw two cigar-shaped objects hovering just 15 meters away. One landed and changed shape while the other flew away. Stephen took a few moments to observe from afar, but the rare opportunity compelled him to get a closer look. He approached the strange aircraft and reached out to touch its seamless surface. When suddenly, the fingertips on his gloves melted, and then a sudden burst of hot air or gas struck him, burning him and leaving him nauseous and confused. The unidentified flying object flew away into the night. Stephen later emerged from the bushes and was covered in burns and heaving with nausea. An abnormal explosion had burned his clothing and skin with some form of radiation, and it had left a strange grid-like pattern all over him. He continued to experience a series of illnesses in the years to come. He has been a victim of the unexplained. Stephen had witnessed something unbelievable, and as the years went on, he said he steadfastly held to his story, but he reported that he regretted confessing the experience. It was extensively investigated and was never resolved or explained away. You can still visit the Falcon Beach Ranch to see the area and the surrounding property for a special UFO tour. Just be cautious of burning your fingertips off and getting a blast of radiation that will leave grid tattoos all over your skin and a lifetime of upset stomachs. Try at least to enjoy some horseback riding while you're there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bonnie. <laughs> I I will enjoy that horseback ride. Sure. Preferably pre-burnt off fingers. Yep. Let's have some horseback. (laughs) That was awesome. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Thank you, Bonnie. That was amazing. Yep. Loved it. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Enjoy some horseback riding. (laughs) Next up is our pal Jessica from the Asian Madness podcast. She's also celebrating her first year, uh, the first year of her podcast. So we're kind of like pod brothers and sisters here. That's right. We're twins. Uh, she 
shared a horrifying story that happened to her personally oh. while she was at school. Oh, can't wait. Yeah, here's uh, Jessica's story. And this one actually creeped me out. Good. So this is a story that happened to me when I was in my freshman year of university. I can't say it's really paranormal or really ghost-related, but it happened to me, and I was really scared at the time, so take it as you will. This is a story about sleep paralysis. So I was 19, and I decided to head back to my school dormitory because I didn't have any class that afternoon. There were six people in my dormitory, so it was a little bit crowded, but we all had our own space. Our beds were always on top, while our desks were underneath our bunk beds. This happened around 2 or 3 p.m., and I climbed up to my bed, and I decided to lie down and take a nap. I remember the birds were chirping outside. I could hear them as they were really loud. The lights inside the dorm was on. And there was at least two other people working on their computers, I think. But I know I wasn't alone. So I drifted away to sleep. And suddenly I woke up. I was really clear-minded and I wasn't sleepy. But I knew something wasn't right. There was no sound at all. The bird sounds were gone. It was complete silence. The lights were now off, so I couldn't really tell if my dorm mates had left or if they had just turned off the lights or what had happened, but the room was completely quiet. So I just lay there and I was like, I should get up and check, but I realized I couldn't move. That's when it hit me. This is sleep paralysis. It wasn't the first time that it happened to me, but it was the first time that it happened to me in broad daylight. I lay there and I was like, okay, this will pass, it's alright. But I was really scared because, you know, you want to move but you can't and that is a weird feeling. Then suddenly, I felt a hand pressure on both my feet, like holding me down. And I started to panic just a little bit. I wanted to tell myself, oh, I'm overthinking it because I'm currently kind of scared. But no, the hands that I felt on my feet kind of started to move up my leg. And since I was lying face up, the hands were moving up my shins, then to my knees, and eventually up to my thighs. But it wasn't sexual, no, it wasn't. It was just something was crawling up along my body and it was really terrifying, and I couldn't move. I could feel the hand pressures. And the weirdest part, one of the fingers had a ring on it, and I could feel the ring on my leg. Then I closed my eyes because I just didn't want to see anything, and I was hoping that it would all be over soon. But no. The pressure kept going up my body and it felt like somebody was crawling up my torso now and I felt something heavy on top of me and then suddenly I hear like an old woman cackling next to my ear. Oh my god, I thought I was going to die. Not from like a ghost killing me but from like fright. 
I closed my eyes, I would not open them, and then I just tried my best to move, and I just tried and tried, and then she just kept cackling like near my ears, and I just couldn't do anything about it. Then just suddenly, like that, I woke up, and everything was back to normal. The lights were on, the birds were outside my window chirping again, and I could hear people typing away on the keyboards. It was just one of the most bizarre experiences ever. I didn't tell my friends this until later, until after one of my friends actually took a nap in my dorm as well. And she said, I just experienced sleep paralysis in your dorm. And then we shared stories, and I think that was the last time she ever took a nap in my dorm. So that's my story. It was really terrifying back then, but now I guess I'm okay with it. Uh, I don't know if I'm okay with it though. Yeah, sleep paralysis is for real, man. Yeah. I, I've talked to people who've gone through and that shit's real. I have the opposite. I'm moving around in my sleep and, and talking and, and doing all kinds of crazy things. Sleep unparalysis. Yeah, I'm very unparalyzed. Reparalysis. <clears throat> wow. So thanks, Jessica. Uh, Jessica is, I believe she's back living in Taiwan. She was in the Philippines for a time. Mm. But uh, yeah, if you want to check out a great podcast about that side of the world, check out the Asian Madness podcast. We've talked about it a bunch of times here. Do it now. Well, well no, end. do it after. Yeah, yeah, but, but do it then. Speaking of friends, uh, our friend Ud Gallifrey Ood. from the Occulte Veritatis podcast, which is based in Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. he shared a frightening tale about his grandfather and his great-grandfather's encounter with a strange creature. Have a listen. Oh, I can't wait. Hello, lovers of dark poutine. Mike was nice enough to contact me and asked to submit a story for this Halloween episode. By the way, I'm Ud Gallifrey of the Occulte Veritatis podcast. You can find us at ovpod.ca. But it's not about me today. It's about the story. What I'm about to tell you happened to my grandpa's dad, my great-grandfather, with my grandpa witnessing... Saskatchewan has a lot of farming legends. For those of you that didn't know, I live in Saskatchewan. It's the flyover land of Canada where all the farmers roam. And people spin a lot of yarns here out of boredom. My grandfather's name was Eugene, and he was just eight years old at the time of this incident. He had his summer routine down. His mom would make a pack of sandwiches and cheese and high-calorie stuff that a farmer's body will need to keep moving throughout the day, and she would give it to my grandfather to run out to his dad. His dad's name was Mike. So one day he ran out this bundle of, I think it was ham sandwiches, and wrapped up bacon fat with cheese. It sounds gross, but it actually tastes quite good. 
and he ran out these sandwiches like normal. Now most days, the other farmers that my grandfather's dad worked with also had their family members run stuff out, but this day, Grandpa was all by himself. Uh, his other workers had gone home to their houses. But when he got to the regular place, he couldn't find his grandfather. And he searched around, and he looked around the farm equipment, and he looked behind this shed that they kept spare farm parts in. And he found a big, black, shadowy figure standing over my grandfather. He didn't know what to do. He said it looked like a dog, except its edges were all misshapen and shimmering. And instead of it looking like an animal, it simply looked like a plague of bees formed into the shape of a wolf. To this day, I don't think my grandpa had the words to describe what he saw. Anyways, he carried the lunches in this big pail. Uh, he didn't have a backpack and his family was quite poor, so he just used a big copper pail to carry this stuff around. And as soon as he spotted this thing, he did the only thing he thought he could. And he swung the bucket as hard as he can at the shadowy figure. And as soon as this bucket hit its form, it seemed to dissipate. Now my grandpa passed some time ago, but I remember the look in his eyes when he was trying to describe what it felt like to hit this thing with the bucket. He would stare off above my shoulder, like he was lost in thought trying to find the words. He said it was similar to passing through water, except it seemed way more rough. It almost seemed scrapey, like it had more friction, like it was scraping against gravel, but yet it was hanging in the air like a shadow. His dad was diabetic, so he got some sweets out of his pocket and some water and gave it to his dad, and his dad woke up. His dad, my great-grandfather, never believed my grandfather. He thought it was just youthful indiscretion, and he was panicked seeing his dad passed out, so he was hallucinating. But my grandpa swears he saw that creature, that mass of angry, buzzing shadows in the shape of a dog standing over his unconscious dad. His dad never had a mark on him. Assuming this thing is real, what would have happened if my grandpa were ten minutes late? Was this thing trying to feed? Was this thing trying to steal souls? I don't really believe in the ghost, but the conviction in my grandpa's eyes is hard to argue with. Anyways, that's my story. Um, me and two friends run a little podcast called Occulte Veritatis. It's basically, we smoke weed and drink and talk about horrible things that are too hard to talk about sober. And we try and find a hidden truth within each episode, so find us at ovpod.ca Happy Halloween. Clearly I have asked the right people to share stories with. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. Holy that, crap. The thing that that is always hard to argue against whether you're a believer or not is the conviction. Yes. And so when, when talking about mm -hmm. the conviction in his, his uh, grandfather while telling the story, like just how like convinced he was of what he was saying. Like, Surely, you yeah. can't argue against that. He believed whether it was real or not. He, mm -hmm. he believed that. And that, that's the, like, that gives you shivers alone. I think that's why Stephen King's writing is so powerful too, mm -hmm. because it's always from that psychological perspective. Is this something 
that is happening only for this particular person who is the yeah. storyteller. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's pretty fantastic. Uh, next up, we've got a story all the way from Salem, Massachusetts, and you know that that oh. that is uh, the. The, the town the that is... The epicenter of, of witchdom. Exactly. Uh, well, Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss lives in Salem, and she decided that she would like to share a story with us, too. Oh. So here's Kate's story. I look forward to it right now. Hey, this is Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss. I live in Salem, Massachusetts, and so I feel obligated to tell you a story about Salem. Everybody asks about the witches, but the reality is the vast majority of the interesting witchy stuff happened in a different town. None of it happened here. They were Salem Village, we were Salem Town, and then when the hysteria thing was all done, they got embarrassed and they changed their name to Danvers, and instead we get all the tourists and the pagans, and the Satanists, and the traffic. You know, hooray. It's fun. It's a weird town. There is one witch hysteria story based here that I can tell you about, and that is Giles Corey. This man was 81 years old and known for being a cantankerous jerk. He was just snotty, he yelled at people, he beat one of his farmhands to death and walked away with nothing more than a fine. Just ugh. But eventually he was accused of witchcraft and I feel bad for him for that because it was a crappy thing. If you pled guilty, then you lost all of your property, but you were allowed to live. If you pled not guilty, then they hanged you because they were able to use what's called spectral evidence, which means it's in my imagination and so therefore it's true. Oh boy. So Giles, he was arrested and brought to court and they asked him, how do you plead? And he refused to answer the question because without a plea, the case cannot proceed. So they decided, in a very practical, Puritan sort of way, that they were going to torture it out of him. He was held in the jail, which actually is... The building still stands. It's an 80s bar now in Salem. They took him outside, stripped him naked, piled a pallet of sorts, a wooden pallet, on top of him, and started laying rocks upon him. Giles looked at them and said, More weight more weight. At one point, there was so much weight upon him that the sheriff had to use his cane to poke Giles' protruding tongue back into his mouth. Eventually, you may be shocked to learn, Giles died, but not before making eye contact with the sheriff and saying to him, damn you, damn all of Salem. Since then, occasionally, Right down there, he happened to die very close to Howard Street Cemetery, although it wasn't a cemetery at the time. There's still, though, there'll be a glow about the cemetery, sort of like a glow stick that's almost done. Sort of greenish. And that glow is seen most often right before some sort of massive event. It's been seen before nasty blizzards. It's been seen before uh, one of those county-wide crop failures, that sort of thing. 
Most famously, several people reported it in 1914, just before a fire started. That fire happened to start on Gallows Hill, which is where the witches were hanged, although it took until 2016 to confirm that. Anyway, it started on Gallows Hill, and it raced from Gallows Hill to the Howard Street Cemetery with unnatural speed. It wiped out 30% of Salem. It turns out that Giles' wife was hanged on Gallows Hill, and Giles died on Howard Street Cemetery grounds. Coincidence? Well, yeah. <laughs> Still a pretty cool story, right? Another thing that we may claim to is that because of Giles' curse on the sheriff, the office of sheriff was a dangerous thing to hold for a long time. Essex County contains a bunch of towns, but the sheriff's office was located in Salem for many years. And sheriffs in Salem had a bizarre tendency to die young, to die without warning, and often to die in bizarre ways. There were a lot of unexpected boating accidents, or there were horses that would shy over nothing and accomplished horsemen who would fall off and die. There were aneurysms and strokes. Later, there were car accidents. It was a long series. By the 1980s, the sheriff knew about it, and he deliberately stepped out early. He said, I want to spend time with my family. My blood pressure is rising. I can't keep doing this. There were, immediately after him, enormous financial scandals around the sheriff's office. In 1991 or so, maybe 94, I forget. Anyway, 1990s, the sheriff's office was physically moved from Salem to Middleton, so 15 miles away or so. And since then, the sheriffs have stopped dying so unusually. So maybe... Giles just has stopped taking his revenge on those who took his life and his wife and 23 other people so unfairly. Boo. See, so the moral of that story is like if you're going to create a ghost... Or if you're gonna, if you're gonna like kill a witch, don't like, don't make sure it's not a cranky, cantankerous, angry son of a bitch because that's not gonna make a good ghost. No, like and, and you want it to be like, oh look, happy little girl picking flowers. Well, no, not that either. <laughs> no, but like, what do you want it to be then? I just, just not, not a cantankerous, cranky, get off my lawn guy. Get off my lord. Because that's going to be some terrifying haunting and, and burning of a city, one third of a. Right? Yeah. Crazy. Don't do that, people. Don't. If you're do listening, that. Eh, just don't kill witches, period. So we've got two more. Okay. Next up is Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast in Nova Scotia. Oh, yes. Jordan is also partnered with Chorus Media, just like we did recently. And Jordan was kind enough to share a pretty cool story with us. So here's his.
Hi Mike, Jordan from Nighttime here. I got a story for you. It's, it's a true story. Something between a mystery and a ghost story, I suppose. Now as a kid, I grew up on a small dead-end street, which was then a brand new subdivision. The streets and the homes that lined it were all built in the late 70s to early 80s. But in the case of my particular street in the subdivision, it was built on what historically was farmland owned by a wealthy family named the Smiths. As it turned out, when the developer bought and repurposed the land, the Smiths sold their land except for a large lot where their house was located and a wooded area that divides it from the now developed subdivision. So this arrangement basically led to a gated driveway off of my street that led through woods to the Smith's home, which was an old colonial style house. Now, myself and the other kids in the neighborhood were all universally instructed by our parents to not go up there or even go into the green belt that surrounds the house. And it wasn't for any reason in particular, just simply because the Smith's, despite having a driveway connected to our street, were very much not a part of our community. No one knew them. Well, know them beyond simply knowing their last name. In fact, hardly anyone even seen them. I only recall seeing a car pass through the gate to their home maybe every six months or so, and it was always late at night or in the early, early morning hours. Now, it's no surprise that this culture of leave the reclusive Smiths alone led to a lot of curiosity among myself and the neighborhood kids. I have a vivid memory of the first time I, I snuck through the green belt that divides their property from the other homes on our street. And I'll share it with you, because it actually gives me nightmares still to this day. Now, I was with my older brother and a few of his friends. I was probably seven years old. They had told me that the house was haunted and occupied by an old witch. They wanted to go up there and see what she was doing. Now, as we inched our way through the bushes and trees that surround the property... I recall the first time I saw the house. To say it looked like a haunted house would be an understatement. In fact, it was almost a cliché. It sat on the top of a hill, a large white house with both the paint and shingles peeling away in any direction they could. The remains of walkways that surrounded the house were visible, but long since grown in after what appeared to be years of neglect for the home and its landscaping. Now, where we stepped out of the woods, the other kids and I, we were a couple hundred feet from the place, but close enough to see that the windows long stopped functioning as something you could see through. They looked black with years of grime and further years of moss taking root on top of the grime. And just as our small crew of unlikely explorers stepped out of the forest and faced the house, we found ourselves contemplating our approach from the remains of a space where many years ago the Smith's grass lawn abutted the woods. But before we had a chance to vocalize our plan, a member of the group swatted a bug that flew near his face, then another did, then another did, and then we realized what we had done. We're standing in a circle with our hands in our pockets, looking at each other, and then one of us noticed and directed the others to the danger we were in. On each side of us, just feet away but barely visible due to the brush overgrowth, were wooden boxes spotted with drilled holes. Holes that immediately became crowded exits that an army of long-forgotten honeybees were angrily swarming out of. At that moment, we realized that luck, or lack thereof, led to our arrival to the Smith's home occurring on the exact location of some past beekeepers' long-neglected hives. The bees, however, seemed to be doing a great job keeping their civilization together, as within moments the air was filled with them, and they were pissed. 
Immediately, we began running back through the green belt towards the street, initially laughing out loud at our misfortune until one member of the group, the only one smaller and younger than me, started screaming frantically. When we stopped to see what had happened, I expected to see like a twisted ankle or something, but this was way worse. He was slapping himself on the chest and trying to pull his sweater off, instantly bawling, crying, and shouting that there was a bee on him. Then the group and I looked on in horror as he lifted the sweater up over his head, revealing a patch of caked on bees running from his hip up into his underarm. Once he got his sweater over his head, in a frenzied panic, he managed to get his arms and head tied up in the sweater. And as he kicked and bucked, he looked like he was on the losing end of a hockey fight against a swarm of bees with his sweater pulled over his head. We all were shouting at him to lay down and roll, and when he did, one of the older kids scratched the bees off his side with his foot, almost like peeling peanut butter, except a living, stinging peanut butter. And again, once that happened, we all got up and started running towards the homes. And by the time we got out of the woods, him ahead of us, we followed him, and he was, of course, running towards his house. When I got there on site in his house, he was sitting at his kitchen table with his shirt off, his mum pacing back and forth, already on the phone calling an ambulance. Once I got a look at him, I noticed the welts and swelling on the side where the bees were. It had the look of, I don't know, like he was bitten by a shark. And in the end, he was okay. And of course, with a newfound crippling fear of bees, but okay nonetheless. Now this experience, although horrid and scary and made me afraid of bees as well, what it really did was cement the mythology that surrounds the witch and the haunted house at the top of my street. Mythology that would expand over the years with each new experience involving the Smiths, their house, or a discovery we neighborhood kids made in the woods that surround their house. And there were many, but all stories for another time. So Mike, thanks for having me on the show. I wish you and Dark Poutine listeners a happy Halloween. I love bees, actually, but I, I hate bee stories like that. <laughs> I was on, on set for Nicolas Cage when he was doing <laughs> the bees. I actually walked into a wasp's nest when I was younger and got stung over a hundred times in my face and ears and eyes. and It was horrible. Yeah, I've never had a problem with bees. I could go on, but... So, last but not least, my buddy Tyler, a.k.a. The Voice... From one of my personal favorites, the Minds of Madness podcast, sent along his own story. Here's Tyler. Hey, it's Tyler from the Minds of Madness. So you wanted to hear a scary story from me, and I don't think this one is exactly scary, but I guess at the time I was a bit creeped out. So this would have happened, I'd say, about 20 years ago. I had just moved in to the girl I was dating with. I had moved into her house, and in the house it was a one of those small post-war bungalows that they uh, put up in East York, just off the Danforth in Toronto. And it had two bedrooms upstairs, a small living room, small galley kitchen, and the basement had been finished. There was a bedroom and then just your standard unfinished basement part of it on the other side. I guess it was about a month into living there. I think at that time I was working days and the girl I was dating, she was working evenings. And her brother also lived with us he had the bedroom downstairs and he was out. So I was there by myself 
at the time, I think it was getting close to Christmas, I had been dabbling in painting. Uh, I was working with acrylic paints and giant canvases, and I, I don't think they were really that good, the paintings, but we hung them up, I think, just to, uh, mostly it was done probably to humor me. And so I'm sitting in the living room, painting on the floor. I had this giant canvas and I was painting and I started hearing this banging and things were moving around downstairs and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not really familiar with the house. It was a, it was an old place. And so I thought, okay, well, it's probably just the pipes or something. And it continued. And I think, you know, probably about 10 minutes into it, I was like, okay, I hear a noise would stop and then I continue painting and then I'd hear another noise and it would stop and then I started hearing like I guess the best way to describe it would be like a, I thought it was like a kitten or like a puppy young animal whimpering kind of sound I figured that was coming from outside I I don't believe in ghosts or anything like that and uh, the thought didn't occur to me that it could be something that wasn't alive, I guess would be the best way to describe it. So I'm painting away, I hear the noise, I'm like, it's coming from outside. And then I realized this is actually happening a little bit more often than you think a knocking pipe or, or you know, a cat outside crying would be. So I went to the top of the stairs, I looked down to the basement, no sounds. And then I'd come back and I'd hear a sound. And then I'd go back to the top of the stairs, kind of walk halfway down the stairs and kind of tilt my head and listen towards the basement. Nothing. And it got to the point that I decided I was probably going to go outside. And I walked outside of the house, looked into the basement window. And it was one of those, you know, those really narrow ground level, small windows in a window well. And I sat out there, and this was December, so I mean, it was cold. And I sat out there and stared in the window into the basement and watched and watched and watched. And nothing, nothing happened. Went back into the house, heard another bang, and I think I yelled something like, you know, stop it or something like that. And that was it. Nothing beyond that. So it freaked me out a bit, but not really that much. Anyway, uh, the girl I was dating comes home and I said to her, I'm like, um, when I was here and it was really quiet, I kind of started hearing all these things in the house. And she goes, oh, did you hear the baby crying? What? She's like, yeah, did you hear the baby crying? And I'm like, um, I heard something, but I don't know what it was. And she told me that her brother would get woken up in the middle of the night uh, hearing a baby crying outside of his bedroom, which was downstairs. He moved out a month later. We hadn't heard anything beyond that. And then we moved out the following month after he did. And yeah, it was only the one time. It was really strange. We never ended up finding out if there was a baby that had passed in the house or anything like that. And it was just kind of this creepy event that happened. And I don't even think we really talked about it beyond that night. I guess that was my one brush with paranormal activity. And aside from that, 
nothing else spooky has happened. I'm going to knock on wood. (laughs) Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks, Tyler. I know you don't think that was very scary, but it creeped the heck out of me. So that's it for our Dark Poutine Halloween anniversary special. It was a long one. Uh, but, it, but it should be. It should be. Thank you to everybody who participated in this episode. We'll have links to everybody else's podcast in our show notes. We really appreciate that you guys took the time to share stories with us. We know you're all really, really busy folks. And just that you shared with us means means the world. It really does. Thank you. Before we go, we want to thank this week's Good Eggs, our new patron patrons. Callista DeVille from Oakland, California. I was chatting with Callista via the internet. The internet. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Amber Catlett from Sterling, Virginia. Thanks, guys. Amber and Callista. Allison Moon from Portage, Michigan. Hey, Allison. Angela Jones. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Angela. Siobhan Smith from Port Moody, BC. Great name. Great place. Christopher Golden, a pal of ours from that telecom we used to work with here locally. Hey, Christopher, miss you, buddy. Crystal Davidson. Thanks, Crystal. Tamara Strumminger from Danville, California. Hey, Tamara, thank you. And finally, Chris Fahey. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Some people have been listening since since day one, and we appreciate it. Yeah, aside from you and me. Yeah, Scott and I were the first two downloads (laughs) of the show on October 31st, 2017. We were the only ones who downloaded And I really liked the show, so I kept listening. Funny that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast.gmail.com. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Dark Poutine and tell your friends. Especially fun is our closed group, uh, The Yumber Yard. Uh, we're active in there. There's a thousand people in there now. We've got mods that are doing a fantastic job. Spectacular and, job. Yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who comes and joins us there. Can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. And that's it for this week, and uh, we'll be back again to begin our second year. Yeah, uh, after this episode, I need to go change my drawers. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Blah, blah, blah. Ooh.